Welcome back to Beyond Culture, where the podcast that attempts to bridge the gap between culture and politics. I'm your host, Abel, and today's three-part episode is a conversation between myself, my co-host Ivan, and Jermaine Kamunga about racism, police brutality, and the recent protests. In this second part, we talk about the New York stop and frisk policy and its lasting effect on the relationship between the police and the African-American community. Furthermore, we discuss the history of civil rights protests in America. Take a listen. All right, we're back. Um, Yeah, so, yeah, we wanted to get into the stop and frisk uh, policy in New York. Yvonne, you were talking about the carding, uh, your carding experience and the policy as a whole. But I also want to give our listeners uh, context and just inform them a little bit on what the stop and frisk um, policy is. Um so as Ivan, you mentioned, the Stop Question Frisk program, uh, or most commonly known as the Stop and Frisk in New York City, is a New York City Police Department practice of temporarily detaining, questioning, and at times searching civilians and suspects on the streets for weapons and contraband, so uh, drugs and etc. In uh, 2016, a reported 12,404 12, stops were made under the stop and frisk program. The stop and frisk program had previously taken much of on a much wider scale. Between uh, 2003 and 2013, over one 100,000 stops were uh, were made per year, uh, with uh, 608. 85,724 people being stopped at the height of the program in 2011. Uh, so you can see that the, 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 well, you can see the progress there. The, the, the policy go, starting, starting, uh, in the early 2000 and reaching its peak in, uh, 2011 and going back, back down, um, uh, after that. So 90% of those stops in 2017 were African American or Latino between, uh, mostly between the age of 14 and 24. 70% of those stops were later found to be innocent. On average, uh, from 2002 to 2013, the number of individuals stopped without any conviction was 87.6%. Uh, there's an argument uh, in favor of stop and frisk, which claims that uh, uh, the policy reduced uh, crime rates because uh, it was it was more proactive. However, the the facts do not really support this narrative. Uh, in fact, you know, and we hear this conversation mostly in the um, uh, in conservative circles. You know, um, people claim that. Uh, it was these policies uh, enacted by Mayor Rudy Giuliani that, which uh, brought down the crime rates. But in fact, uh, crime rates were were already in decline before the implementation of these policies, not only in the U.S. but also in many Western countries. You know, plus, um, since the policy was not implemented on the national level, and the crime rates 
were in decline on the national level. This suggests that uh, the decline cannot solely be attributed, if at all attributed, to the policy. Um, furthermore, um, crime rates are still in decline in New York after the ban of this policy. So, excuse me, um, a study in the Journal of uh, American Statistical Association conducted in 2007 found that under the stop and frisk policy, person of, and I quote the study, person of African, of African and African American and Hispanic de uh, descent were stopped more frequently than whites, even after controlling for precinct variability and race specific estimates of uh, participation. Um, and so, yeah, um, so to sum up, you know, to sum up a little bit about the, the study that I just quoted, uh, here's another quote. Um, so the quote goes as following. Uh, to briefly summarize our findings, blacks and Hispanics represented 51% and 33% of the stops while representing only 26% and 24% of the New York population. Compared with the number of arrests, each group in the previous of the number of arrests of each group in the previous year, as used as a proxy of rate of of criminal behavior, blacks were stopped twenty three percent more often than whites, and Hispanics were stopped thirty nine percent more often than whites. Controlling for precinct actually increased these disparate uh, discrepancies with minorities uh, between. 1.5 to 2.5 times as often being stopped as often as white, uh, compared to, compared with the group's previous arrest rates in the precinct where they were stopped. Um, so, uh, the differences in stop rates among ethnic groups are real, substantial, and are not explained by previous, by previous arrest rates or precincts. Um, yeah, and one more or another argument uh, for stop and frisk was that uh, it was used and it was effective to get rid of guns um, off the streets. But if once more, if we look at the numbers, uh, this argument does not hold ground at all. Um, in 2003, the police recovered uh, 627 guns for 100,000 160,851 stops, question and frisks, uh, which is a success rate of 0.3%. Um, and whereas in 2011, at the, at the peak of the policy, uh, the police recovered seven, 780 guns for 685,724 stop, stop and frisks. Um, uh, which was a 0.1% success rate. So, um, you know, like there's actually evidence that has emerged that to show that this policy has created, that has created some harm. You know, we know that, uh, students heavily exposed to stop and frisk were more likely to struggle in school, that young men were more likely to experience symptoms of, uh, anxiety and depression, and that this exposure uh, fostered cynicism in policing and uh, in government in general. Um, 
and made the residents of the neighborhoods uh, most likely to in the in in the neighborhoods where which were more uh, affected by this policy to retreat from uh, civic life. You know, so I guess you know I guess this sums up what you guys were saying and. This goes, uh, this goes to show and once more that, you know, these policies are just, they're, they're, they're not that effective, you know, like, uh, having a policy that has a 0.3% success rate, that goes from a 0.3% success rate to a 0.1% success rate and maintaining it for, for as long as, you know, like a decade, you know, and, you know, and knowing that these policies can will have harms in uh, in communities, you know, with like it's 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 not hard to imagine that if you if you keep stopping people, um, if you keep stopping people in and uh, and uh, frisking them, they're probably going to have anxiety and uh, struggle with depression and those kind of things, you know, or just mistrust the police uh, as a whole. And I. I remember I read somewhere uh that you know there was a there is a there's there's a man who 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 said that he 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 had been stopped I think um what 500 times in the past four he like in the past four years and and he said this uh I believe around 2016 you know so um and and the guy who who was stopped that many times didn't have a criminal rec- record so as you, as ivan you mentioned you know people people who are uh, targeted by these policies oftentimes don't have any you know a criminal record or anything you know it's just it's basically just because you're black that you you're targeted by these policies mhm and just the indiscriminate uh, lumping, like the idea of lumping, you lump all these people in a group together and you just, it's its the most blind tactic I've ever seen. It's like you close your eyes and then you're like, all right, let's see. Let's see if I could find something like you would never do that in real life. If you're, if you're walking down the street, you're never going to walk down the street with a blindfold on. You have to see where you're going and what are you trying to achieve with this, uh, with these policies. And as, as it shows, Stop and frisk carding have such a high social cost, like Justice uh, Tulik said, it has such a high uh, social cost, but such a low evidence of even being efficient. So these types of policies just, again, deepen, deepen, deepen the divide between the community and the police. And we see it also... Like, cause eventually we're gonna, we're about to get into protesting, but also I just want to talk about this practice before we get into that, but the practice of kettling. So we've seen it, we've seen it happen where uh, police officers, when there's mass demonstrations, they start kettling people, kettling people in. And that is so, to me, that type of practice is, that type of practice is so animalistic. Cause what they would do, and we saw it during the G20 in Toronto, and that was one of the darkest hours for, for the authorities in the city of Toronto. So, and yeah, so the story really is on, happens at Queen, Queen and Spadina. It's a, it's a big story. So they start, they start kettling people in. So you stop. So you, every, there's like four corners and you have these demonstrators inside and 
And for the most part, it was just peaceful demonstration. Some people were just leaving their their offices and going out. Some people were just caught up and wanted to see what was what the demonstrator was happening. And without a, in a moment's notice, like without even getting told or whatever, the police start closing in. And they'll start closing in and they'll tell you move, move or disperse, but there's nowhere to go. So you go try to move at the back. They're already circling in. You have nowhere to go. And they close it, close it, close it. And the way I see that tactic, and it's become controversial because not only does it affect like people that were just there, like that, that had no part. Like, if there was even any, there wasn't even violence, but if there was violence, it was, it's just you're, you're grabbing random people that are, that are in a specific area. But on top of that is the mental anxiety that that causes, the claustrophobia that that causes because you're circling everybody in into one small confined space where they can't go anywhere and it's such a mind mess up because you're telling them move like disperse go somewhere else but they can't go anywhere else because they're in that they're they're just confined and you get closer and closer and during that time you're some people are getting brutalized or getting pulled out of the circle like dragged out and the office of independent police review uh specifically spoke about that g20 moment they said like in a severe rainstorm, because that, because they, they, they closed the people in for hours, hours on hours in, on Queen and Spadina, it was pouring rain, pouring rain. So it's like in a severe rainstorm that included thunder and lightning, um, was, uh, the kettling of people was unreasonable, unnecessary, and unlawful, according to the, to the OIPRD report. It violated the detainees' constitutional right against arbitrary detention and was negligent again this is just comes to the type of practices police officers and authorities have against people like like fundamentally all people are asking is like yo treat people as human don't just put a blindfold on and and just take whoever from the street or just card anybody or just detain anybody have some type of humanity in the actions that you're taking. And there's still to this day lawsuits going on about the Queen Espadina protests. Like still to this day, that's how bad it was. Yeah, and the irony of what the police is doing and what they're complaining is, is like for instance, right now with all the posters and stuff, you got some police officers or some like um people who support like the police, they're gonna say stuff like, oh, not all police officers are racist. Not all police officers are bad. It's only a few bad apples. Well, how can you say that? I wonder not all police officers are bad and etc. Yet, when it comes to communities of color, such as, well, I hate using that term, black people, okay? Because we talk about black people. When it comes to black people or Hispanic people, you do the same thing. Like, you paint a broad brush. You paint the whole group. Yet, when people want to do the same thing to you, you're the first one to complain. So, I mean, if there's kind of like an irony of what they're doing, and it makes no sense. And as you say, like, a lot of these policies end up by backfiring because you end up by doing more harm than you do good. And, like, it makes no sense. Not only are they not only ineffective, it's one thing to say something is ineffective, but it's another thing when not only that thing is ineffective, it is effective in doing the opposite of what you hope to do. So, I mean, it does way more harm than it does any good. So, you know, like, this is where, like, when we're going to get to the solution portion of it, I'll elaborate more. But, like, this is where things such as, like, community policing should go in. This is things where, like, um, where the community, um, you need more officers 
who live in those communities who are out there policing the police. You need more diversity, quote unquote. You know, this is where these different strategies come into play to help reduce this sort of stuff. Because in all honesty, crime, first of all, when we talk about crime, we need to define what crime is. Crime has never been, crime is, it's a social construct. It is society that decides what is a crime. Like, for instance, right now, if we live in Canada, before marijuana used to be illegal. So possession of marijuana was a crime. But now that it is legal, it is not a crime. So when we talking about crime, 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 crime is really a social construct. It depends. Like, if you go back in, like, for instance, in the 1865, after black people have been um, free from slave, you know what was a crime? Not having a job was a crime. Being homeless was a crime. You know, all looking at a, for instance, looking at a white woman, a black man looking at a white woman, or like, um, blowing at her, talking to her, whatever, was a crime. So when we are talking about crime, a lot of the stuff that we consider crime, first of all, it, our social construct, we should look to define what crime is. So that's, that's. Yeah, and, uh, you know, um, and just to keep on with the conversation about crime, so, uh, so there, there, there's, in the US, for example, you know, the, uh, the the policy of mass like just the effect of policy drug policy since the the 1970s you know um has resulted in mass incarceration and we always hear about this you know um we as we we were covering the the 2020 election the Ivan and I we talked about the 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 drug bill the crime bill uh and ninety four crack um ninety four drug drug laws or yeah, whatever and, it's called uh, the ninety four crime bill yeah ninety four crime yeah, bill and you always hear about these these things you know so like I I I always just want to uh give people context about what like what the numbers are you know so in the U S there's two point two million people in prisons and jail and that's a five five hundred percent increase over the last forty years. You know, uh, non-whites make up only 37% of the U.S. population, but they make up uh, 67% of, of the prison population. And furthermore, African Americans are more likely than white Americans to be arrested. Once arrested, they're more likely to be convicted. Once convicted, they're more likely to face stiff, stiffer sentences, you know. Black men are, are six, are six times as likely to be incarcerated than white men. Hispanic men are, are more than twice as likely to be incarcerated than non-Hispanic white men, you know. And according to the CDC, four, four out of five drug law, uh, violation arrests are for possession and not uh, for sale and manufacturing. So, you know, we, like, people always say, oh, uh, people are in, 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 in jail because they committed crimes and most of the crimes are because they're selling drugs you know like it's not even true it's it's basic most of these people who go in jail for for drug um, for drug law violation violations is for merely possessing possessing the drugs and the ways you can and just the drug law policy also is discriminatory because the 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 ways, so what, you know, the drugs black people are most likely to use are policed very much differently than those white folks are use. So one example of this, uh, disparate, uh, disparity is, uh, the, the difference in, uh, policing, like the, the drug policy enforcement of, between, uh, 
crack uh crack cocaine and powder cocaine so mm-hmm. uh so there's mm-hmm. a drug bill of uh 1986 that it's 88 yeah 88 crack laws yeah so 88 or 86 so this drug bill mandated that anyone who was caught with five grams of crack cocaine five grams must at least serve five years in prison five grams whereas for powder cocaine the amount was half a kilo which is hundred times what the, the and you know how much money you get make you know so powder cocaine you, you make more money selling that than selling you know, crack and, that's crazy you know and you and we always hear about the crack epidemic and all these things you know but the, the result of these policies is that uh like black people are, are sent to prison to to much higher rates than white folks you know so so as as we're we're talking about you know just Jermaine, you're talking about uh, uh, crimes being a social construct. Being a social construct does not mean that something is not important or not real or not you know. It it just means that it's something that uh, you know it's something that is a, a concept that is developed by society. You know, so it, it, which implies that we can evaluate what these contracts are and that's why you see uh, a wave of uh, of uh, a movement of people wanting to decriminalize many drugs because they affect they affect communities differently you know um so um yeah but uh, the other thing as we're to- we're talking about you know we're talking about the uh, the relationship between black communities african american communities and uh, and the police you know, like there are instances, not just of, uh, like in- instances of, uh, police, of police officers being racist toward black people, but there are like patterns of, of systemic racism. And by that, I don't mean like, uh, there's a guy who, who hates, uh, black people and, and goes on and makes laws, uh, affecting black people, uh, uh, negatively, that that's not what people mean when they talk about systemic racism. We, when people talk, when we talk about that, we talk about the laws that affect some communities much more negatively than others. You know, and and before I let you guys uh, get into this, I just want to talk about uh, some investigation into police departments in the U.S. following following you know the the. The, the the police involved killing incidents that happened uh around 2014 2015 when the black lives matter movement uh kind of started so I, I and because i you know i when we 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 make these claims you know i i like i'm one of those person who doesn't like just making these claims and not supporting it with you know clear cut uh, examples or data or s- such things you know so that's why i really want to take my time to 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 give examples you know so i, I i'll just go into two investigations so th- the first one is an investigation in uh, is a just department of justice investigation in the uh, ferguson uh police department so uh, uh I mean, the first one is uh, in the Baltimore Police Department, and the second one is the in Ferguson. So, in the aftermath of the death of Freddie Gray, who was a 25 years old uh, black man who died of a spinal cord injury while in police custody, um, the 
the Obama DOJ investigated the Baltimore Police Department. So the Baltimore, uh, the investigation found that the Baltimore police uh, stopped people for essentially no reason, particularly particularly uh, black residents. They're they are far too quick to use force. Charges are often dropped due to lack of merit for any prosecution. Cops re- regularly uh, violate people's rights, including those protected by the First Amendment and the Fourth Amendment. And virtually everyone is aware of these types of uh, of problems. So officials within and outside of the police departments, members of, communi- of the community, and even police uh, union representative acknowledge that there is a desperate need for reform. Um, the second... Um, uh, the second investigation was, I found this one more shocking and, and it was into, it was the Obama DOJ investigation into the Ferguson police department. So the DOJ basically found that the, the, um, the, uh, uh, the Ferguson, yes, or yes, that the, the Ferguson, uh, uh, police uh, department was basically using black, the black community, uh, as the slash fund, you know, they were basically just stealing the money, money from the, the black community. Um, and this is in addition to unlawful biases and stereotypes, you know, uh, the disparities were rooted in the city's reliance of, uh, of police department and court for local budget revenue. So federal officials found that city officials work together at every level of enforcement from city management to see to the city prosecutor to the police to the police department to to make as much money from fines and uh, court fees as possible ranging from uh, schemes to raise total fines for municipal code violation to asking cops to write as many citations as possible you know um and you know, and uh, so he, here's a uh, here's some stats about the the, the Ferguson uh, department police department practices. So the report noted that although black people made up to made up about sixty seven percent of the Ferguson population, eighty six eighty eight percent of documented documented use of force by Ferguson police from two thousand ten to August two thousand fourteen were against African Americans. From 2012 to 2014, 85% of uh, people stopped, 90% of people who received the citation, and 93% of people who were arrested were black. Uh, black drivers were more than, than twice as likely as their white counterpart to be searched during a vehicle stopped, but 26% less likely to have, to have contraband. And and just to sum up the report here, I'll, I, I just want to to read directly from uh, from the report. So it says, and I quote: Ferguson's law enforcement practices are shaped by the city's focus on revenue rather than public safety needs. This emphasis on revenue has compromised the institutional character of Ferguson Police Department, contributing to a part- pattern of unconstitutional policing and has also shaped its municipal court, leading to procedures that raise due process concerns and inflicting unnecessary harm on members of the Ferguson community. 
Further, Ferguson, Ferguson's police and municipal courts practices both reflect and exacerbate existing racial bias, including racial stereotypes. Uh, Ferguson's own data established clear racial disparities that adversely impact African Americans. The evidence shows that the discrimination the discriminatory intent is part of the reason for this disparity. So you obviously you have intent there, but you also have like a systemic issue there where you're basically using you're using a, a community to pay for your for the operation of a of a police department. You know, like these these are just the instances in which you know you you'll hear uh, communities rec- communities you know protest that the police is basically being unfair to us and you know like a lot of people will be like what do you mean but these are like there's like over uh 18,000 uh police departments in the US the the the, the Obama DOJ only investigated a few so imagine if you you know, if you were to miraculously, if you could investigate all those uh, police departments, what could, what, what do you think you could find? You know, so and I, I'd, re- I'd like to just and just to finish up, I'd like to link this to our discussion about uh, about the relationship between African American communities and the and the police because there's a there's a new poll that came out uh, uh, by Axios and Ipsos that found out that uh, 77% of whites say that they trust local police compared to only 36% of African Americans who say that they trust local police. So, you know, so like my question to you guys, and I guess this is a point of reflection, is the police and a legitimate institution for most for most black people or most uh, black communities. Okay, uh, let me handle this because you touched on so many different topics, and in all honesty, they all go together. And let me break it down: how they all go together. Because first, when we talk about stuff like systemic racism, we need to understand the context, the history to which it was created, and by understanding that history and that context you'll understand why the situation it is what it is and let me explain the concept for you guys so sit down and listen all right so first the concept of (laughs) so first (laughs) so first the concept of race where did that concept of race emanate from it emanated from the fact where alexander the great which was an explorer that left europe he went around africa and what he did is he took 16 black africa black africans brought them back to uh, the Vatican and used them, and the Vatican used those 16 black Africans as slaves. So then what the uh, um, Pope at the time, which I believe is, um, I forgot, I, I forgot his name, Pope Innocent or something like that. So what he said is he found an opportunity. He's like, you know what? We could sit out here and instead of us working, we can make these people work for us and gain unearned benefit. Like, as in like, we don't have to work in order to become wealthy. So that was in the 1492s. And this is where the concept of racism was created. The concept of racism was created because white folks wanted to get things done without them having to work. So then after 1492, what do you see? So you see more and more, um, you see like, um, this whole concept of race in which 
we take black people and we make them believe that they are inferior to whites and that they must serve white people. And so then what that has emanated to is like it emanated to like the slave trade and all that, all that. So then what happened is now let's talk about this in context of America. What happened is in America at the beginning you had slavery where um they took um black people from Africa, brought them to America to work for them and to work to work for them. And then during that time, you know, some black people weren't having it. There were black revolts and all that. So then what white folks have did is they've become scared of the fact that maybe one day these slaves are going to revolt and they're going to want to be in our place, you know? So then they've created different concepts in order to demonize the black man, in order to um, reduce the black man to nothing. If you look at earlier constitutions of the American, um, the early American constitution, it labeled black people as three-fifths of an ape. So, I mean, black people weren't even considered human beings. So they've worn about this business. And in 1865, when you had the Emancipation Act, which free black safe, this is where the concept of police and um, jail emanated from. So what the job of what the job of the police was is before they used to be called patty rolls. So before what the police would do be, during the time of slavery, their job was to go out there and like hunt down like black slaves, like any black person that escaped from the plantation. What the patty rollers would do is grab them and bring them back. To the plantation. So then, after um, the um, 1865, the Emancipation Act, which was um, declared by Abraham Lincoln, so you had about two million black free slaves who just came out of, just walked out of the plantation. They had no jobs, no houses, nothing. So then, what America wanted to do is, we have these people who are sitting there not doing nothing. So let's use them to earn, to you know, let's use them to get ourselves rich, to make ourselves wealthy. So this is where the concept of prison came about. So then if you look at the most of the prisons, they were created right after 1865 and their job was to take black people who were just free slaves and bring them into prison in order to turn them back into slaves. So then what happened? This is where I talk about, um, the, this is where I say crime was a social construct. Because back in those days, being homeless was a crime, not having a job was a crime. If you were up past curfew, it was a crime. So what was the, um, what was the point of doing all that? The point of doing all that was to go around, arrest all these black slaves, put them back in jail, turn them back into slaves, so they work for you. And this was the job of the police. So then if you keep going, you keep going, you keep going throughout time, the, um, that happens during all like the, um, the 80s, I mean, no, 1800s, the 1900s, the job continues. So now when we talk about the modern day in police, what is the job of the modern day police? Well, their job is to do the exact same thing that they used to do in 1865, which is what? To go out there, go into these black neighborhoods, create crime, create reasons for why we take these black men, put them back into jail, which is another form of plantation where they have to work for all these corporations, whether it be Walmart, Target, Kraft, Heinz, etc., where they work for cheap, so you have cheap labor, and they produce themselves, and not only do you have cheap labor and they produce themselves, but it's also um, a way to control the amount of the population. Because as I say earlier, if you take all the black, if you take all men and you put them in jail, the women can reproduce. So you keep the black population at a low. Not only you keep them at a low, but you keep them working for you for practically nothing. And that is the job of the police. And if you understand that, you understand that the modern day police 
which has which has the same role as the past April police, was there to keep black people enslaved, was there to put black men specifically, bring them back to jail in order to work for free. So this is where this whole idea of why the police and the black community don't get along because the job of the police is to keep black people enslaved. And a lot of a lot of like a lot of what you've said is that it's um, like you have a lot of valid points. The only point like I would really disagree with is just like I don't believe that the police today like mandate is this is lock up all these black people, control their population. I don't I don't I don't believe that's their mandate. I believe but I do believe there's a there's a complex structure there that enables for that to happen, right? So obviously as we talked about the different police practices that affect negatively black communities. You have the way they police black communities, have the way our community our communities are over police all these things negatively affect the black community and the black community has brought it up, brought it up all the time, but it's the not, these practices don't change and people aren't held accountable. So even though I wouldn't say that the police today's role is to like the way you put it so blatantly, that's not how I would put it, but I would say a lot of the practices they do now. And like you spoke a bit about way before you said they have this protection from you know because once they put that uniform they know they have that they know have they have that protection and simply when it comes to and when it comes to getting justice the thing that the reason why a lot of these cases don't get prosecuted is because there's two things here if somebody's if um if a man is if a man is armed if a black man's armed then all they have to say is that the person was armed, right? If a man's unarmed, all they have to prove is that they were fearful for their own life. And that is where stems the problem because it starts, it's such a, a disconnect in the brain because you look at a situation where it's like, yo, the police officer was wrong. You shouldn't like, you look at, the, you look at the Tamir Rice situation. It was a kid that he was playing with a toy gun and then the police officer came on the scene within seconds, shot him and boom. As a, as a human, you look at that and you're like, yo, this, this is wrong. Like somebody has to go to jail for such a mistake, right? But no, because of the, the institution allows police officers to say, look, put yourself in my mind when I saw him with a gun that I didn't know whether it was a toy gun or not. I thought he was, I thought it was a, I thought it was a real gun and I shot him. Those officers never got prosecuted because they're able to prove that. And then the case where, because even Tamir Rice, he's unarmed. That's a fake gun. But let's move on to cases where people are unarmed. All they have to prove is that they were fearful for their life. And that's where you saw in the Michael Brown situation. In the Michael Brown situation, fundamentally, that is what skyrocketed the, 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 the use of, uh, of, uh, body worn, uh, body worn cameras by police officers because in the, a most crucial moment there was conflicting eyewitness reports about did mike did michael brown charge at the police or did michael brown have his hand up and did he say hands up don't shoot because that's the core right hands up don't shoot it became huge right nobody could confirm need that or not because there was no there was no footage of that situation we don't know what happened ultimately the cop was able to make the jury i believe it was a jury he was able to show the jury look i feared for my life he was coming for me i had to i, I had to shoot him even though michael brown 
as you know, as we know, he was he was unarmed, right? But fundamentally, that's what that's the point of frustration because it's like, bro, just some of these situations where it's like these 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 um these things that they do it's like yo there has to be some type of prosecution but no because the system allows for officers to either either say look the guy was armed or to just have to prove that they were fearful for their life and now they could get off scot-free that is where the frustration lies within the community wait let me answer to one wait let me answer to one of the things you said which is like where i said so what you need to understand is the police is part of a greater institution so while I'm sitting out there saying that the job, the mandate, I'm not here saying that the mandate of the police is to put back black people back, um, is to make black people safe. But the mandate, um, the police is part of a greater institution. And the goal, the objective of that greater institution is, one of the goals is to get more things produced at a cheaper price. So what they do is they use the police as a vehicle in order to get those same people that you once had in in the plantation free in the plant plantation field, which are free to go back into the quote unquote modern day plantation. So, as Abel pointed out, you look at policies such as like the eighty six crack law or the ninety four crime bill. What were those mm-hmm. policy part of? It was part of the greater American uh, society whose goal was to take all these black men, take them off the street, put them in jail in order to work for cooperation for free. So the job of the police is not to necessarily target black men, but like as part of the greater institution where they lie is, yeah, they're an arm of that institution that go out there in the streets and grab and grab those people. That's why, for instance, when you look at um why um crack and you look at the difference between policing between crack and powder cocaine, why? Because at the time they believed that crack was more used by black people. You know, it used to be called the poor man's drug. Whereas, um, powder cocaine was used more by like the elites, white people. So this is where, like, for instance, um, you had a hard mandatory minimum for like, um, crack and all that. Why? Because by doing that, you, by creating such laws is you create an atmosphere in where you could send those police officers in these neighborhoods, send them in larger numbers and to grab more and more people to bring them back in jail, back into the modern day plantation where they could work for companies such as like Walmart, et cetera, et cetera, where they get paid like about 25 cents a day compared to um, having to um, pay people like, what is it, $10 an hour or whatever to work. So it's cheaper mm-hmm. labor and the police is just like, he's in the, they're in the middle, you know? Yeah, that is, that is what yeah. I meant. That is what I meant. Yeah, no, I guess. Yeah, um, for sure. I bow. Yeah, well, um, yeah, not to stay uh, too long on on this on this segment here, but uh, I guess we we could move on to uh, the 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 violent protests that we've been seeing all across uh, the U.S. and also. Wait, should we take a? Uh, not now. I, yeah, no. I, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Let's let's just keep. Okay. Going yeah, for yeah, now. yeah. Um. Yes. Yeah, I don't. I don't mind. Whenever you're done, I'll just open up the protest segment. Yeah. So, um, yeah, uh, Ivan, uh, you, you you can you can go ahead. Yeah, like as uh, like as we we've been talking about like the root causes of what has been causing this like frustration and everything. There's been talk about the looting the destruction of property, et cetera, as the protest grows in the U.S., all 50 states have uh, have engaged in protests. On top of that, you have protests going on in different countries, U.K., 
Um, obviously Canada here, I forgot they said about like almost over 10 countries have started doing these protests. So it's been, it's been going on like, and it's arguably people are saying it's a, one of the biggest like civil rights protests we've seen in modern day history. Right. And uh, for me, like when people like they, I understand that looting and destruction of buildings is bad, et cetera. And I, and I'm, like for me, two of these are bad too. But I question if when people look at these protests and the only thing they take out of these protests is like, look, people are looting and destroying buildings. I really question whether people are trying to understand the root cause of these protests, right? It's like somebody said it perfectly. I forgot who said it, but they're like, yo, look, imagine you went to a hospital and a doctor is just checking for your symptoms and he leaves it as that. That wouldn't make sense to you because it's like, because you can have an underlying condition that will just keep giving you the same symptoms, but you'll never do it because the doctor never looked for the root causes. You never looked at, maybe you have cancer, maybe you have an aneurysm, anything, right? You have to understand the root causes. You can't only look at the symptoms. And a lot has been made about the people have been starting to bring up, okay, look at, look at how Martin Luther King protests, peaceful protesting, et cetera. And I kind of wanted to get into that because I believe there's a few, there's like about three things we could learn from the way of Martin Luther King protests. Cause starting with, uh, the Montgomery, Montgomery bus boycott, what, uh, what happened in Montgomery with Montgomery with, uh, Rosa Parks is that, um, sort of in, in the Montgomery bus system, there's the, the first 10 seats are allocated to the white people. The back 10 seats are allocated to black people. And then you have this middle section of about 16 seats. So there's like 36 seats in total. But that middle section of 16 seats, it's the way it works is that as from going from forward to back, it's white, white, and then black, right? So whichever white person starts the row in the middle section, the black people have to go to the back row. We can't be in the same row, right? So what happened with Rosa Parks is that she sat in that middle section and the white man came in and he's like, and, and, the law stipulates that Rosa Parks has to stand up and create another black row at the, after that, right? She was like, no, I'm not doing that. So what happens after that is, is she gets ar- arrested and the woman's political council in the, in Montgomery was like, you know what? On the Monday following Rosa Parks arrest, cause Monday was supposed to be her trial date. They're like, what we're going to do is we're going to get the whole community, the black community to boycott the bus. They're like, oh, Everybody book at the bus. There's different ways you can get around. Maybe take a taxi. Maybe take that day off, but boycott the bus in support of Rosa Parks. Cause that, I believe Rosa Parks was like the third black woman that was arrested in this, in the, in the same manner and because of the same situation. So they're like, let's boycott the bus. The protest was very, very successful on that Monday. And then Mar- Martin Luther King was like, uh, that same night was elected the president of the, uh, Montgomery Improvement Association. And in that, and during that meeting where he was elected president, they discussed, do we keep this bus boycott going on for longer? What should we do? And Martin, uh, Martin Luther King advocated, let's keep, let's keep doing it until they desegregate the buses. Because what we spoke about before on this, on this, uh, on this podcast is about go affect the bottom line. If you want change, you have to affect the bottom line. And I believe black people were are three, three fourths of the people that would use the, the bus system. So here we go. Now they're, fully engaged into protests. And there you see the black community band together because you have now this allocate the, uh, um, this, uh, this very diverse way, this network of, uh, let's say taxi drive, black taxi drivers charging 
uh, African Americans the same rate that they would be paying in the bus. You have also, um, carpool, a carpool network being created. The whole community is getting together to, for this bus boycott. And eventually, uh, 381 days after the, the boycott starts, they finally desegregate the buses as the Supreme Court rules it unconstitutional to segregate the buses. And that, and that model is a model that keeps getting used, right? So th- this is the first thing we learn about affecting, affecting the bottom line of these corporations or these institutions that are racist against you and that commit these immoral acts. That's one of the first thing we can learn from Martin Luther King about that affect the bottom line. Now, going on further, people talk about the violence, uh, about how he was a non-peaceful, uh, protester and he was, but also you have to understand that strategy was the well, that's the strategy from Martin Luther King came because not only is he a god fearing man, but all but also uh back in the day you the way the pol the police showed their true colors they showed it unprovoked and we see it even now during the protests right so when Martin Luther King originally he went to uh to Albany because he wanted to desegregate the city and. He said he, he organized kneel, kneel, uh, kneel ins and sit ins and et cetera. But the Albany police chief was like, I'm not, I'm, I'm not falling for these, uh, non peaceful protests because she learned that, okay, if I attack him while he's doing peaceful protests, then it's just going to galvanize the whole movement. I'm not doing that. So what they would do is they would just do mass arrest, no violence, no nothing. They would let it go. They would just let it happen. And ultimately, the uh the Albany campaign in 1961 was a complete fail. Like nothing ended up happening in Albany, right? But Martin Luther King was like, "All right, I know for you. We know for a fact the way the police treats black people. We know that they they brutalize us and etc." And what he did is he now he now he went to Birmingham, Alabama. Birmingham, Alabama was home to one of the biggest racists you could ever know back at the time, which is uh. Eugene, uh, Eugene Bull Connor, right? He was the public, uh, the public safety chief in the, in, Mon- in, uh, Birmingham, Alabama. And Martin Luther King did the same thing he did in Albany, but this time in Birmingham, the police and the whole institution just showed their true colors. He did the same thing, sit-ins, kneel-ins, and that's when they were hosing down protesters. They were using dogs to attack protesters. And these images till this day, till this day are in all history books and they're all seen as the the catalyst and the and the amount of uh, and the movement that really propelled the civil rights acts which comes afterwards in 1964 and i say all these things because we could we could learn these two things from Martin Luther King about affecting the bottom line and also you don't have to do much for the police institution to show you what they've been doing for a long time we've seen it now all over the states during these protests. You've seen videos of police just being reckless and brutalizing protesters and et cetera. In Atlanta, you saw that those two uh, uh university students, the police within seconds, they come right, they come at the car, slash the tires, tase the tase the two students, drag them out of the car, and it was under the presumption that they thought they had a gun in the car. That's why they, they took all these actions. And now all six officers have been put on on leave and they were all they've all been charged but we we're seeing this right now during the protest like the the police are sh- are showing how brutal and how indiscriminate like their tactics are and i think 
that is one of the things that, that is ultimately going to lead to a lot of these changes. It's the same stuff that happened back in 1963. And the next year after 1963, after Birmingham, you have the 1964 Civil Rights Act. I think those are the things we can learn from Martin Luther King. A protest without goal is useless. But now we have these goals that we set, that we set in place. And on top of having these goals, we also have the police showing how brutal they are. And I think that is what, for me, is going to really help with the social change we want to implement. And also, one thing that I forgot to add is this. When you talk about community relationship, um, when you talk about police community relationships with the black community, you also have to keep in mind that the police historically had, um, were the ones who were responsible for oppressing the black community. For instance, if you look at segregation, who was responsible for enforcing segregation? The police. Jim Crow laws. Who was responsible for enforcing Jim Crow laws? The police. You know, so like, from a historical standpoint, the police has always been on the other side when it comes to black people and the freedom. So this also has created, like, this also, like, reinforces the narrative that, oh, the police is against us. We cannot ally with the police. Because all throughout history, if you look at the history of the police, as I explained earlier till now, the police has always been on the side against black people. And unless that the police is going to come out somehow, some way, and be for the black community, like, tangible acts to see the way black people can see, okay, yeah, well, now the police has changed or whatever, community police relationships will not change. Okay, that's the first thing. The second thing is this. When it comes to Martin Luther King, there's so much hypocrisy. Like, when people use, oh, Martin Luther King was non-violent, blah, 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 they still killed him. The man was not violent, he was still killed, first of all. Second of all, at the time when Martin Luther King was walking, most white people in America did not support what he was doing. I believe the polls around that time showed that 60% of white America did not support Martin Luther King. They did not like him. He, They sent dogs after him, hoes. They beat him up. They arrested him multiple times. So now all they of a sudden... They bombed his house. Yeah, they bombed his house. They did all sorts of things. So all of a sudden... Now today, you're talking about, oh, Martin Luther King, this and that, that, that. When back in the time, not only did you not support him, but if you look at the change that Martin Luther King generated, when the desegregation of the schools, whatever. Well, you know what white people did when um um the government um signed the desegregation of the schools? You know what they did? Why were black people, why did the government force themselves to bust black kids into, um, into white schools? You know why? Because the parents, the white parents, the same what parents of the people out there protesting, once upon a time, they were the ones going into these buses, beating up black kids, bombing these um, buses, um, killing some of these black kids. So this idea that, oh, Martin Luther King was all this peaceful, whatever, whatever, why can we not be like Martin Luther King? Well, you guys hated Martin Luther King. Even up until today, you have people protesting for why Martin Luther King Day is a national holiday. So there is so much hypocrisy when it comes to... um People comparing um, today's movement to Martin Luther King. It's like, well, he did it peacefully. You killed him. So what else do we have to resort to? And also, when it comes to the protest, first of all, when it comes to the violence, I have three things. When they burnt down that police station and they burnt down police vehicle, I condone that behavior. And I'm going to tell you why. Because those are the exact institutions that have been out there historically that has oppressed the black community. So I do not condone the burning down of the police station or the burning down of police vehicles first. Second of all, when you talk about co- cooperation, when they burn down like targets of Walmart, 
to be honest, I don't give a damn. And let me explain you why I don't give a damn. Well, first of all, these corporations that they make billions and billions and billions of dollars, all right, they will rebuild them. So it's not only an issue. Second of all, when you look at the corona funds, when the government released about $2 trillion in corona reliefs for everyone, well, who got most of the money? These same corporations at the burning. Target, Walmart, Amazon, etc., etc. So this idea that, oh, well, the burning now targets a bad thing, whatever, whatever. No, it's not a bad thing. Jeff Bezos is about to be a trillionaire. You look at like the heads of Walmart, the heads of IKEA and all that. They're billionaires. So they will, they will rebuild that. So I don't really give a damn. But third, when it comes to burning down local businesses and all that, now this is where I am more sympathetic to the fact, this is where I condemn the action because, you know, Burning down local businesses not only is it not going to change anything, but some of these people are the same people in the, the community providing essential services. So this is where I condone that behavior. But also, what we must keep in mind is this protest is not only filled with people that support the movement. You got agent provocateurs in this protest. You got undercover police. You got white supremacists. You have anarchist group who have all tried to hijack this protest to push their cause. Like for instance, White supremacists, agent provocateurs, and undercover police are out there purposely burning down buildings, purposely creating riots. You see, you've probably seen this where they're going around giving out bricks to people or putting bricks in place where there's no construction. So their goal is to try to diminish the movement so that people have this idea that, oh, these Black Lives Matter protesters are dangerous, they're thugs, whatever, whatever. So the plan is to destroy the movement by the inside. You also have anarchist groups, which who want to come out there, hijack every issues for whatever causes they are. So when we talk about the violence of the protest, to be honest, most of the people doing that violence are not people who support the protest. They're not even there for, they don't, you know, I remember one time I was watching a video, one of the police officers said, well, we arrested some guy that did like the burning and we asked him, what are you protesting for? The man does not even know who George Floyd is. Who does not even know who George Floyd is, but he's out there. So we have to keep in mind that a lot of this chaos that was created by the quote-unquote protesters are actually people who are sent there to create chaos in order to diminish the movement. Second, when it comes to the violence, to be honest, I am sick and tired of people calling out violence. Kaepernick kneeled peacefully. What did he get? Ostracized. Martin Luther King marched peacefully. What did he get? Killed. So, I mean... We've been peaceful for over 400 years, and what has happened? None of y'all wanted to listen to what we said. None of y'all did anything to change our situation. So, you know, sooner or later, people are going to get angry. And people have seen that, oh, we've been peaceful for all this time. Nothing changed. You know what? Let's fight. Fire is fire. Let's go out there, burn down these businesses, and do all this other sort of recklessness in order for us to be listened for us to be heard. And if you look at it, it has worked to a certain extent. Because, look, Captain McNeil, no one wanted to listen. But when they're burning out targets, riding Gucci, burning out Louis Vuitton, well, guess what? People are listening. People are listening. And also, one thing that I must add is a lot of these companies who are getting the quote-unquote um, build business burn and whatever are actually paying people to do that. And why? They're paying people to do that because with this coronavirus pandemic, a lot of these businesses were scheduled to go out of business. So what way is it to go out of business if you pay people to burn down your store so you get some insurance money? So a lot of this riot, this burning, this chaos are purposely made by the same people who are out there claiming that, oh, go back to my religion, whatever, whatever. 
So it's not true. Most of the protesters are peaceful. All of the protesters are peaceful. The rioting and the looting and the burning are done by people who are paid to do that. They are paid agitators that are in this movement for whatever reasons. So, uh, well, before I, I, I want to say before we take a final break and address, uh, uh, Trump and the solutions, you know, and how to move forward. I just like to, you know, add to what you guys were saying. Although, you know, there's, there's, there's been, uh, you know, there's been some mis- misinformation about the, 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 what's happening with the violent, violent protests or just like lack of clarity of what exactly is happening, you know. Uh, so, you know, like my, I guess the way I, like I prefer things is just to, you know, wait a little bit and wait for some time to find out exactly what's happening with these riots, you know. But uh, um, that doesn't mean that I don't uh, I don't condemn these uh, uh, riots. I think it's that is a, a reasonable position, and uh, but also that doesn't mean that I one must not contextualize uh, the. The situation, you know, uh, the these riots are happening in a country that's going through three crises, three major crises. I must add, you know, a public health crisis, an economic crisis, and a social crisis. You know, and furthermore, um, the existence, uh, systemic, the existent institutional racism in the United States exacerbates these crises for many African Americans, you know, and just to be a bit more uh, concrete about what I mean. So if you look at uh, the coronavirus, the COVID-19, you can see it, you can see that it's affecting African Americans uh, uh, disproportionately, you know, compared to white Americans. So in, uh, in Milwaukee County, for example, African Americans account for 27% of the population and account for over half of all the COVID-19 cases. In Illinois, African Americans account for 15% of the population, but 33% of the COVID-19 cases and 40% of the COVID-19 deaths. In Georgia, for example, African Americans account for 37% of the population and 62% of the COVID-19 deaths. And uh, also like in like starkest of of all these example is the city of St. Louis um which in which uh, African Americans account for 47% of the population and almost 3 quarters so 75% of all the COVID-19 cases um are African Americans and pretty much everyone who has died from the virus uh is black you know so and there's also there's also uh studies on the national level indicated that African Americans are three times more likely to die from the coronavirus than than white folks you know so but this this is not to say that the virus itself is racist but there exist these uh disparities in the system regarding health healthcare you know regarding income regarding how people eat regarding you know all these things that amount to uh, amount to the the results we're seeing so on the second crisis that i mentioned you know the economic crisis in the us i think there's like 40 well 
there there was at least 40 million people who were unemployed because of the coronavirus. And although um, this morning, as um, this morning, uh, we're June uh, 5th, there was a jobs report that came out. And um, the pre- I saw President Trump did a press conference, you know, uh, uh, talking about how the numbers are are looking better because I think there's like a two million or three million jobs new jobs were added in in the month of May two point five two point five you know but so if you so the numbers are the unemployment numbers dropped in May for white Americans from fourteen point two percent to twelve point four percent but for African Americans. Uh, it stands at 16, it was at uh, 16, right now it's at 16.8%, whereas in April it was at 16.7%. So if you look at, uh, you know, before, you know, like I think it's it's helpful to contextualize the the moment in which we're living in before, you know, like as as you're looking at what's happening in the streets obviously burning out small businesses even bigger businesses i believe is is wrong and is mm-hmm. at the end of the day is not helpful to to the cause although you know there's some there's more attention it's as not. you as you as you said uh Jermaine, that is now on the cause because of of these acts but i believe at the end of the day this is not helpful because all you see is that there are people who not only don't want to align with the cause and are using the the violence as an excuse to not uh, to not align with the cause, you know. So that's why I don't believe this this violence is necessary. But uh, yeah, but I'd like to take a break here, and then when we come back, wait, 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 wait. let me add one thing. No, no, let's take a break. Let's take a break. Let's take okay. a break. Take a break, because because I have to come back for this, man. I have All to right, come so back let's take a break here, and then when we come back, we'll talk about Trump and the solutions to to this.